Up next, on Book TV's Afterwards, Georgetown University professor Angela Stent examines Russia's relationship with the U.S. and the world. She's interviewed by Democratic Representative Dina Titus of Nevada, a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Well, Professor Stent, it is certainly a pleasure to get to meet you and have an opportunity to discuss your latest book, Putin's World. As a political scientist, I miss this kind of discussion, but your work has certainly informed me for what I do on the Foreign Affairs Committee. I was looking at your resume, which is most impressive. You're a professor and a scholar at Georgetown. You're a published author with highly acclaimed works on the U.S.-Russian relationship and beyond. You're the director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies, and you're a former intelligence officer. I, I wonder if you could start by telling us how wearing all those hats has informed your work and share some stories with us. If it's okay, you can tell us without having to kill us. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, I'm delighted to be here with you and uh, um, feel privileged to have you talking to me about my book. So I started off as an academic, um, and, you know, I got the bug, I guess, when I was an undergraduate. I took a boat. I w grew up in England, and I took a boat from London to Leningrad, as it then was. I didn't speak a word of Russian, and I got hooked. Uh, so then I did my graduate studies on, you know, looking at Soviet politics, Soviet foreign policy, and I got my job at Georgetown University. But I think right from the beginning, I was always interested in the policy side, too. And the great thing about the United States is that you can do that. There are not too many countries in the world where you can be an academic, but you can also be involved in the policy side. And the first thing I did, actually, was get involved in a project with the then Congressional Office of Technology Assessment. that doesn't exist anymore. But this had to do with technology transfer to the Soviet Union and with energy issues. And a lot of those energy issues that we looked at then... This had to do with the pipeline, the gas pipeline that was being built from the Soviet Union to Europe, to Germany, which was controversial. Those issues are with us today. <laughs> exactly. The same arguments about the Germans and their dependence on uh, the Russians today. And so I, I kept, you know, up working with, I was sometimes with the State Department. Um, I actually, my first government job was in 1999, I was offered a position in the Office of Policy Planning in the State Department. Um, so, and I was offered this as an expert, not a political appointee. So I uh -huh. did the last 18 months of the Clinton administration and the first six months of the Bush administration. So that was also working on these Russian issues, very interesting. I then went back to Georgetown, and then I had the opportunity in 2004 to be National Intelligence Officer. Um, and what's very interesting about that is because that's also a job when you, you produce these national intelligence estimates, you think about the broader questions. What's comforting is that most of the questions they ask in the intelligence community about Russia are the same ones that academics ask, that politicians ask. It's just, you know, you have maybe some different information that you're dealing with. Um, and so um, I, and, and now I've been back, you know, in, um, at the university since then, but I still do some consulting sometimes for the government. So for me, uh, it's been, it's informed my understanding as an academic mm -hmm. of the issues that I'm dealing with. And I think this kind of cross-fertilization is very good. Well, your students are very fortunate, and they must love having you because you can tell them not just the theory, but also what it's like being on the front lines. <laughs> yeah, I think they do appreciate that. And obviously, so. at Georgetown University, a lot of our students, in the end, do go into politics. They go into government, so they're very interested in that, too. Well, both of your books that I've read recently, mm -hmm. Putin's World and the previous one, The Limits of Partnership, which one, I want to brag about it, the prestigious <laughs> American Academy of Diplomacy's Douglas Dillon Prize. Uh, they're based on a number of interviews, you said, mm -hmm. and also your participation in, I believe it was the Valdi International mm -hmm. Discussion Club. Oh, could you share with us some of the challenges that you face getting Russian and U.S. policymakers <laughs> to tell you the truth? Right. Well, so with my previous book, The Limits of Partnership, where I just looked at the U.S.-Russian relationship, I found that U.S. ex-officials mainly, and some were current when I interviewed them, they were very happy to sit down with me. There were some things 
that I couldn't really publish in the book, but yeah. I think they were pretty honest. Um, and I had some interesting conversations with some of the Russian officials, uh, a former foreign minister, Mr. Primakov, other people like that. Obviously, they tell you a story that they want you to hear. They give you their side of the uh, story, but I think it was still quite valuable. Um, and, and for this current book, uh, Putin's World, I've had conversations both with Americans, Russians, and then people in other countries. Uh, in the research for the book, um, I went to China, I went to Japan, I went to the Middle East. So for those chapters, mm -hmm. um, and I'd be in Ukraine and some of the other post-Soviet countries I write about. So that's, it's always useful to hear what people want to tell you. Uh, may I, maybe I'll say something about this Valdai International Please. Discussion Club. Uh -huh. So this, in 2004, the Russian government decided that um, they wanted to invite foreign experts on Russia to visit Russia. They'd show them different parts of Russia, and then we would meet with the president and senior officials. And this is still going on. So I've, uh, I just went to my um, uh, 12th uh, Valdai Club meeting um, uh, later on last year. And what's interesting about this in the beginning it was a rather small group and we met with president putin we'd have dinner with him or lunch with him uh, we'd travel somewhere else and at that point the conversations were in a way more open in the mm. sense that he's just with a small group of people obviously he gives you the answers that he wants to give you but you can observe and see what's what's happening now when they have the conference we always have it in sochi um, but now it's much more staged. They want to do oh, it like their own Davos. Huh. So President Putin sits on the stage, usually with other leaders. That wasn't true last year. But it's all much more stage managed, which is a shame mm -hmm. uh, in a sense. Uh, but you still get, the, you know, the messages from the leadership about what they want you to hear. And I think that is useful to see how they're communicating these messages. Well, that in itself is valuable, what they want you to hear as well as what's really going on, right. isn't it? Yeah, you can, ne it. you can never assume that they're telling you what they really believe, but they're telling you what they want you to hear. And I think that has value, particularly with a country like Russia, where it's rather difficult to figure out what's going on in the inner circle. I can imagine. <laughs> well, you know, Putin is a very popular topic these days. <laughs> I was doing homework for this interview, and I Googled Putin, and scores of topics came up, both in uh, popular and as well as in academic uh, mm. journals. Your, your book, Putin's World, has been praised by the likes of Madeleine Albright as well as William Burns. Uh, and it seems to me that it's kind of part psychobiography of Putin the man as well as then analysis of Putin's Russia and its relationship to other countries throughout the world. Uh, let's start with Putin himself, if okay. you don't mind. <laughs> and uh, you talk about his early days playing judo and how right. that kind of shaped his outlook. Will you take us through some of those experiences and sure. kind of give us an inside look at his personality? Yeah. So what we, what we know in 2000 when he became president, um, he published a series of interviews with two journalists about his early life. And this, is, this comes a lot from that and other things he said. So he was born um, in 1952, and it's just, you know, after the end of World War II and and, and he was born in Leningrad, today St. Petersburg, which, of course, it had a terrible siege where a million people had died when the Nazis tried to starve them out. And he and his family lived in a communal apartment. You know, they had one room in an apartment. They were poor. Um, and he had two brothers who had died previously. So um, his mother was, uh, you know, quite old when she had him. Uh, and there he was born to these parents, happy to have him. But he apparently wasn't a very good student. He says that himself. Um, and he was short, and he was bullied by a lot of the other kids. Okay. Uh, and there were two things, I think, that helped him get out of that. In terms of the student, he found a teacher of German who really believed in him, and he started to study German uh, and uh, did very well in it. And, of course, later on, he was a KGB agent in East Germany. But the other thing I think that really helped him was judo, was martial arts. And he started practicing um, a sort of mixture of judo and some other um, oriental uh, martial arts, and he did very well at them. And I have a picture in the book of him uh, as a young man, I think he was 24 years old, when he got the judo championship in Leningrad, as it then was. And I think the thing about judo, when he still talks about it, he still, uh, you can see him still uh, engaging, he practicing judo, is that in judo, 
even if you're smaller and weaker and physically weaker than your opponent, mm -hmm. if you can sense out your opponent's distraction, your opponent's weakness, and so you can still prevail on someone who's stronger than you. And I think we've seen that playing out in the way that Putin has dealt with world leaders, with the United States, and really in restoring Russia on the world stage. It's this kind of instinct for knowing how to exploit the weaknesses of your opponent. And I think that was probably reinforced by his training as a KGB agent. So that, plus the judo, um, I think has informed the way he looks at the world. You mentioned that KGB agent. Your friend Strobe Talbot from the Brookings mm -hmm. Institute says, this, he, he writes that, as a former counter-espionage KGB operative whose job was to ferret out spies, Putin suffers from preemptive paranoia. Would you, would you agree with that? <laughs> I think that's a, that's a very good phrase. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, particularly when he was in East Germany, he was trying to recruit people. He writes about that also in this uh, autobiography. But yes, but to ferret out people who were spies. And so I think his view of the world is very much informed by a suspicion, particularly of the West. Um, you know, people often ask, does he really believe that the United States is out to get him, out to overthrow him? Um, and I think if, it's not only if you read what he says, but if you see what he does, I think he really has a profound suspicion of the West, and I think, um, and I think that's quite genuine. I, I read several uh, people who refer to a phrase, Moscow is silent, mm -hmm. that impacted his reaction to an event, and that that, that has also tried, kind of tempered his aversion to pluralistic politics. Would you address that for us? Well, yes, it's a great question. So I think he wrote about that again in that autobiography. He was a mid-level KGB agent, I have to say, in Dresden, which was a provincial city in East Germany. And then after uh, November the 9th, 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, um, the people in Dresden, they came, they came up to the building where the Soviet KGB was co-located with the East German uh, intelligence services, and they were basically banging on the doors and demanding files uh, you know, this was the beginning of the end of communism. And so Putin was apparently inside that building with others, you know, putting things in the furnace, burning all these documents so that the people wouldn't get them. Um, but he was, he says in that book that he really wanted some instructions from Moscow. What should he do? But nobody told him. Nobody gave him instructions. Nobody supported him. Um, the same thing was happening in East Berlin when the people came to the border there and wanted the guards to open the Berlin Wall, essentially. Um, and they called Moscow and nobody answered the phone. Yes, I mean, there's a time difference, mm -hmm. but still. So the idea that there was, that Putin himself and the KGB people in East Germany were abandoned by the people in Moscow. And I think that very much stuck with him um, and, um, uh, you know, made, made him understand that it was, you know, it's very important to have clear directions. Uh -huh. uh, and then I guess another way you could look at this, he then went to St. Petersburg and he worked for the then mayor of St. Petersburg, who was known to be a more westward-leaning person. He was the deputy mayor in charge of business uh, arrangements with the outside world. Uh, and then in 1996, there was an election, and his his candidate, the mayor, was not re-elected, and there were various dirty tricks. Yeah. And I think that definitely impressed on him that elections aren't any good if you can't predict who's going to win them. So, uh, <laughs> Well, that seems to be the case today. Right. Is, is, exactly. it, like, see intervention in some of our elections. Yeah. Uh, there was a story in Atlantic, and I'll just paraphrase it and ask you to continue talking about Putin a little bit before we get to the rest of the, the book. But it says, is Putin a manipulative genius or just a gambler who won big? Now, coming from Las Vegas, I can appreciate that. Is he a brilliant strategist with the long game or just a talented uh, tactician? I see him more as a tactician. Again, you know, you've got the judo skills and everything, and he senses opportunities, and he moves into opportunities. He's a, he's a talented tactician, and he understands, and this, again, comes back to his training, you know, the weaknesses of Western leaders. And so you can see that in a number of instances where he has moved in and reasserted Russian influence where the United States and its allies have been distracted. He did have a plan, and his plan was certainly to restore Russia on the world stage. And he's really done that very well. Yeah. He said 
that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a great geopolitical catastrophe, uh, that the 1990s in Russia were a catastrophe, were a disastrous decade. And so he was determined to restore Russia as a great power, which he's done. But beyond that, I, don't, I wouldn't say he's a genius at anything, but I think he's a very savvy person understanding where, where to move in and how to disrupt it's been effective. Well, if we shift now from Putin to Putin's world, uh, I'd like to start by reminding the audience of the four resets that you described mm-hmm. in an earlier book mm-hmm. of the U.S. relations with Russia. And it starts back with the kind of the brief and partial reset under George Herbert Walker mm-hmm. Bush. Maybe you could walk us through those four, and then we'll see sure. if we're in a reset now. <laughs> so when the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, we in the United States thought, thought this was a tremendous opportunity. The Cold War was over. Uh, and so the last year of George H.W. Bush's presidency, there was an attempt to improve ties to Russia. Um, and that had mainly to do with working on the nuclear issues, which are very important arms control issues, you know, helping the, the Russians deal with the nuclear legacy of the Soviet Union. But the person who really had better ideas or a more fully fleshed ideas for the reset was it was Bill Clinton when he came in mm-hmm. and with Strobe Talbot, who was his chief advisor. And they really thought that this was the opportunity. They didn't have much time, but to really embrace Russia and get and persuaded that, that, that it should be integrated to the West. Um, and in the beginning, everything looked pretty good. Boris Yeltsin was the president. He developed close ties with uh, President Clinton. But Russia itself was in a chaotic uh, shape. Its economy wasn't doing very well. And increasingly, the people around Yeltsin sort of said to him, the U.S. isn't really acting in Russia's interests. Mm. Um, And so by the end of the Yeltsin presidency, I think everything ended in disappointment. The United States did, and NATO extend NATO to include Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic Mm -hmm. in 1999, which... The Russians saw against their interests. But I think the thing that really got to them also was the bombing um, of Serbia in yeah. 1999 with the war in Kosovo. So by the end of the time period, the U.S.-Russian relationship had really deteriorated, but it looked in the beginning for the first few years as if it was going well. Um, then when President uh, George W. Bush came in, that was, of course, when The first time he met President Putin, which was in Slovenia in July of 2001, um, uh, he said he had this good meeting with Putin. He said that he had looked into his eyes and he had got a sense of the soul. Um, Now, later on, President Bush in his memoirs said that he regretted saying it. And I remember at the time having a discussion with the National Security Advisor, Condoleezza Rice, and understanding, and she wrote about this too in her book, this really wasn't something, a question they prepared for. But Putin very cleverly sensed an opportunity there after 9-11. He had warned President Bush about the dangers of terrorism resulting from Islamic fundamentalism. He felt the United States hadn't listened to that. And then he was the first foreign leader to call President Bush after the 9-11 attacks. And in that fall of 2001, um, the U.S.-Russian relationship was much better, probably the best that it's been. I remember President Putin came to Washington. He spoke at the Russian embassy. He visited the ranch in Crawford, Texas. Um, They did square dancing together. (laughs) Um, So everything looked as if it was, and the the Russians did help us in that initial phase of the war in Afghanistan. But the problem was everything else that came after that. The Russians hoped, and I say that in that book, that that, that by supporting the U.S., The U.S. and Russia would have an equal partnership of unequals. In other words, Mm -hmm. we would treat the Russians as an equal and really accept that they had a sphere of influence in a post-Soviet space. But what happened was the Iraq war and regime change, and I think Putin felt very much that this could have been one day directed against Russia. Then, you know, the chaos that unleashed in the Middle East and its implications for Russia's own Muslim population then you had the color revolutions, the you know popular uprisings in mm-hmm. Georgia, in Ukraine. Uh, and so everything then led up to 2008 when, you had, when the Russians and Georgians went to war with each other. Uh-huh. Um, and that was really the end of that reset. Um, and then, of course, when President Obama came in, he and his team also had a conception for a reset, which was more limited. Um, but 
I, they, they realized there were certain issues they really had to deal with. And one of them, again, was arms control. Um, one of them was Afghanistan and mm. sort of access to and from Afghanistan. Another was the Iranian nuclear deal. All issue, or the, at that point, the nuclear program. This is before mm -hmm. the nuclear deal. And so, um, but the difference was when President Obama was president in his first term. His partner officially was Dmitry Medvedev, who mm. was then the president, right. because Putin pulled off this move to switch jobs with uh, Dmitry Medvedev because he couldn't constitutionally have a third term. And Did anybody yeah. really believe that Putin wasn't still in charge? Well, interestingly enough, in the beginning, I think people in the U.S., in Europe to some extent, hoped that Medvedev would develop enough of a uh, a, ba a base and enough authority, really, to run the country. But we now know in retrospect that Putin was running the country, but Medvedev was a spokesman. But he and Obama did develop a good relationship. Uh, but there is a, was a moment at the beginning there when, um, uh, in 2009, when Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, uh, met with her counterpart, uh, Sergei Lavrov, and presented him with a little button that said reset on it. But unfortunately... Our translators had mistranslated the word, oh. and so it actually said overload, not reset. So that was kind of symbolically uh, an issue from the beginning. Uh, and then what happened in the Obama administration is once Putin came back into the Kremlin in 2012, everything started to go downhill from there. Um, uh, in, uh, in 2011, there had been these dem huge demonstrations in Moscow against Putin. Uh, Hillary Clinton had uh, blamed uh, Putin and the Kremlin for its response to these demonstrations. Uh, Putin then blamed Hillary Clinton for paying money to the demonstrators Foster. to go in the street. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing began to collapse. Um, and then, of course, the, the Syrian war exacerbated it. Um, and so by the time the Obama administration was over, you know, you already had Russia interfering in the election there. So none of those resets has worked. And I think you could. the simple reason is that our understanding of what a productive relationship with Russia would look like is very different from the Russians' understanding. Well, now, look at the situation now, yeah. since that last reset. We have President Trump. You have the Russian interference in the U.S. Mm -hmm. election. You've got the so-called collusion scandal. You've got the Helsinki summit. Yeah. You've got the INF treaty, uh, a withdrawal from the treaty. <laughs> Are we in for another reset? And if so, what is it? And if not, what is going on? Yeah, I think it's very difficult to think about a reset right now. Um, Russia, as you well know, because you're in the Congress, is a toxic subject domestically in this country. Uh, we now know, we've just had another report, that uh, the Russians were trying to interfere on the day of the midterm elections last November, and it's, you know, we took action, um, our military took action, and we counted it. So that's certainly going on. Um, perhaps when Mr. Mueller has finished his report and perhaps if it's released and we know that there wasn't any collusion, things might move forward. But we have a situation where we have a president, Trump, who would like to have an improved relationship with Russia. Um, but we have most of the executive branch that's very wary of Russia and, of course, the Congress that is too. And for his part, President Putin, I mean, again, in this last Valdai meeting, he did what he's done before. He criticizes the United States, but he doesn't criticize President Trump. Mm -hmm. And he says that the American people aren't giving their president, you know, the, uh, enough time and space to, in fact, implement an improved relationship with Russia. I very much doubt that we're um, in for a reset anytime soon for the rest of the Trump administration. And I don't know if a Democrat were to be president in uh, 2021... I mean, there's still so much baggage left over mm -hmm. from what happened in 2016. So I think it would take a very long time. Um, now, having said that, I think there are issues where uh, we do need to work with the Russians. Um, and one of them is arms control. I mean, the U.S. is now mm -hmm. uh, going to probably withdraw from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Um, I don't know what's going to happen to the New START Treaty, which is the Strategic Weapons mm -hmm. Treaty, which expires in 2021. If we don't have any arms control treaties with the Russians, then I think we're in a much more dangerous space. So I think that would really necessitate some kind of re-engagement. What about the economic sanctions? What role do they play in all of this? Well, I mean, the Russians don't like the sanctions. Um, the banking sanctions that were introduced after the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of 
southeastern Ukraine. They have hurt the Russian economy. The sanctions have hurt the Russian economy, but it's still, you know, grow. I mean, it's growing at a slower pace. Mm-hmm. And then Russia imposed counter sanctions on European imp- foodstuff imports, and that's actually stimulated the Russian agricultural sector. So they're producing more grain, they're making cheeses that they never made before. So the sanctions have had an impact, but it's a mixed impact. Um, I'm not sure how efficacious it is to introduce even more sanctions. Mm -hmm. Um, The Russians haven't changed their policy in Ukraine. They haven't stopped interfering, Mm -hmm. trying to interfere in our domestic system. And sanctions are a blunt instrument, and some of the sanctions affect our own companies and our allies' companies, too, in, in dealings with mm-hmm. Russia. So I think, they, I think some of those things have to be thought through a little bit more carefully. But then the question, of course, is if you don't impose more sanctions, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Is Russia's position in Ukraine going to be similar to in Georgia, where it's just kind of a war of attrition and they just stay, and pretty soon people get used to the fact that it's an occupied territory? I think that's what you see at the moment. I mean, the Russians certainly aren't making any moves to implement the Minsk Agreement, which was something that was signed in February um, uh, 2015, Germany, France, and the Russians and Ukrainians. Um, The Russians are saying they're going to wait until the Ukrainian elections are over. Well, that's coming soon. And maybe you will have a, a president in Ukraine who might be more willing to deal with the Russians. But the fact is, we see very little movement there, and people are still getting killed. So I think you could see exactly for a long time going forward a so-called frozen conflict, even though it's not completely frozen, where you have casualties, uh, but where people just get used to it. Uh, I was going to ask you about the reset. That a, a scholar named Molly McHugh mm-hmm. wrote that no reset can be successful, regardless of the personality driving it, because Putin's Russia requires the U.S. as its enemy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Secretary of Defense under President Obama, Ash Carter, said something similar. Putin defines Russia's interest in opposition to and with the objective of thwarting Western policy. So it's very hard to build a bridge to that motivation. Uh, I, would you agree with that? Or are you a little more optimistic that if we find some common ground, like you mentioned, the uh, arms control, that we can be a good partner with uh, Russia? Well, right now, under Putin, the enemy image of the United States has been a very important part of his appeal to his own population. Uh, you know, he annexed Crimea. The war began in, in southeastern Ukraine. He appealed to patriotism, and he blamed the West uh, for having tried to foment a coup in Ukraine. Uh, he blames the West, he blames the U.S. for Russia's economic difficulties. So right now, there is an enemy image of the West. On the other hand, what's very interesting is Putin's popularity has fallen by about 40 points since he was re-elected last year as president. And public opinion data in Russia shows that the majority of Russians now don't want stability. They want change. They want a better economic situation. And many of those people understand that having this very antagonistic relationship to the West is really not the way to go if, they're, if they want to have greater economic growth. So I, I wouldn't minimize the need to have the West as an enemy, but I think it is possible to deal with Russia um, and engage them a little more than we are now um, and not have any illusions about what that's going to produce. But I think it is still very important to keep the engagement going. Uh, on the dust jacket of the, of the book Putin's World, you say that Russia is a challenge to the U.S. in every corner of the globe. Yeah. So it's not just the, <laughs> the uh, relationship between the two of us, but the impact that they are mm-hmm. having universally. And uh, I read that it would be to our uh, disadvantage to assume that Russia is going to not be like every other fallen empire, even ancient or modern, and go quietly into that good night. Mm -hmm. You can forget that. They're still going to be involved. (laughs) So I would ask you, remember when uh, now Senator Romney Mm -hmm. was ridiculed in a Mm -hmm. presidential debate for something he had written about Russia being our biggest uh, geopolitical challenge. (laughs) How would you address that? Would you agree? I think we probably have two geopolitical challenges today, and one of them is China and one of them is Russia. And probably in the longer run, China is the bigger challenge just because it's a rising power, which Russia isn't. But I do think we made a mistake in assuming that the Russians would accept the loss of empire Mm -hmm. um, because, and I do detail that earlier on in the book, you know, 
Russia's conception of itself as a great power is an essential element of its identity, and that means, um, you know, dominating the lands and the countries next door to it. Um, and that's why, again, coming back to what Putin said, that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe. Mm -hmm. So now what, what Russia is doing is not only trying to have a sphere of influence in the post-Soviet space, but also, I think, while we weren't really watching, <laughs> extending its influence in corners of the globe from which it withdrew after the Soviet collapse, but now it's back there. And I write in the book about the Russian-Chinese relationship and Russia's role in the Middle East, which I think are the two most successful aspects of Putin's foreign policy. But I certainly think Russia is one of the two greatest um, geopolitical challenges. And it's a traditional military one. But then as we see in the cyber era, um, we have an, an entirely new aspect of the way that Russia challenges the U.S. And I think we're still scrambling to figure out how to respond to that. Well, let's talk a little bit about Russia and some of these other parts of the mm -hmm. world. We focused on Russia and the U.S. Uh, let's start with that the mosaic of their former uh, members mm -hmm. of the Soviet Union and how they've tried to now re-exert uh, influence in, in those former states. Yes. Yeah, so, the, of course, this has only been partially successful, but they have something, they've created something called the Eurasian Economic Union, um, which is Russia, it's Kazakhstan, it's Armenia, it's Belarus, it's Kyrgyzstan. So it's a mixture of, um, of different post-Soviet states. They really wanted Ukraine to belong to it, but that was, you know, a tipping point, really, in the revolution in Ukraine in 2013-2014, uh, because the Ukrainian leader uh, decided that he wasn't going to join um, that Eurasian Economic Union, but, uh, you know, wanted to stay out of it. So their influence varies. I would say Russian influence in Central Asia is probably stronger than it is in other parts of the former Soviet Union. The Russian-Armenian relationship is still very close. Obviously, the Russian-Ukrainian relationship is very bad, and um, its relations with its other neighbors vary. Um, it's not trying to recreate the Soviet Union because I think it realizes it can't. But if you look at the domestic systems in most of the countries of the former Soviet space, they're very similar to that of Russia. Mm -hmm. These, are, you know, it is only 30 years after the Soviet collapse, but the legacy of communism, but even before that, um, is really quite strong. So you have, uh, you know, governments where that are run by a small clique of people whose families are involved in that, where. The people who run the countries own most of the um, assets of the, the countries. The oligarchs. Um, there are no. There's. You know. There. There are very few free and fair elections. I mean, Ukraine is a real exception, and Georgia to some extent, where you can't predict the outcome of the elections. Moldova as well. Um, uh, but, there, but there's a huge amount of corruption, and in yes. that sense, that gives Russia leverage. Uh, because it, under, it still understands the way that most of the leadership in these countries works, and it's able to exploit it. I'm, I'm a member of the House Democracy Partnership, and mm -hmm. we visited a number of these countries mm -hmm. trying to encourage the development of democracy and institutions to support yep. democracy, primarily parliaments. We find an awful lot of turnover an awful lot of corruption, as yeah. you mentioned, and very little independence of the judiciary, which you need to right. move this forward. Yeah. Uh, is that, would you agree That's with that? That's an excellent point. I mean, the absence of the rule of law is true in every post-Soviet country. Yeah. There is no rule of law. Um, in some countries, they're trying to get more rule of law, and in others, they forget about it. There are laws, mm -hmm. but judges are not impartial uh, in many of these cases. And again, because of the corruption, many judges can be bought. Yeah. So, you know, if any of these countries were to develop the rule of law, that would be a very important building block in becoming a democracy. And you yourself mentioned, quite rightly, institutions. Um, I mean, in a country like Russia, you don't really have many institutions anymore. I mean, they exist on paper, but it's all personalized rule. It's personalized, mm -hmm. um, you know, autocracy. And that's true in many other post-Soviet countries. Again, if we go to Ukraine, um, it's, it's different there, uh, but there is no rule of law. There's a lot of corruption, but there's more pluralism. Um, but there aren't the institutions of a functioning modern state. And I think, I don't know how long it's going to take for any of these countries to develop them, but it will be a very long time. It's a little discouraging that we find that they're less interested in learning about how to promote democracy and more interested in just investment capital. 
Exactly. They want money from the West. Uh um, And we sometimes confuse, and we did that certainly in Georgia with the previous leader, Saakashvili, countries that say nice things about the West and would like to join NATO and democracy. (laughs) I mean, they know how, a lot of these leaders know how to talk to you know, Western officials, yeah. con- people from Congress, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they actually believe in democracy. Yeah, they want the money, they want the investment. But, you know, in the absence of a rule of law, none of these investments are protected. I mean, yes. right now we have in prison in Russia one of the most enthusiastic American investors, uh, Michael Calvi, who's been there for a long time and who played by the rules of the game, and he's now stuck in jail because there's some dispute with shareholders from a bank. And so this is the thing, when you, if you want to invest in countries like that, the United States or Western investors have to have some guarantee that their investments will be protected. At risk is too great. Yeah. Well, to go beyond the former Soviet Union to Europe and the kind of mixed relationship they've had between Western and Eastern Europe. Right. We've seen in Eastern Europe some of the uh, countries that were part of that sphere of influence starting to move back. If you look at Hungary, look yeah. at Poland. Uh, let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the more surprising and disheartening things that, you know, we were very enthusiastic. A country like Poland, we were really enthusiastic about in the 1990s. We said, look, this is a real democracy. They understand democracy. Uh, And um, we sort of said the same thing about Hungary. Uh, And now what do you see today? You Mm -hmm. see countries that even though they're in the European Union, they're in NATO, they're Mm -hmm. moving back towards, you know, illiberal democracy, particularly Hungary. And plus, Hungary is moving much closer to Russia. Poland isn't yet. I mean, the Polish-Russian antagonism is still there. I think some of it is these countries just haven't dealt with their past. You know, if you go back to the interwar period between the First and Second World Wars, they were all run by pretty authoritarian governments. Then they had the Nazis uh, invade them and occupy them, and then they had the communists. So they really don't have that much of a history um, or the institutions, really, and now it's it's like a backlash. And a lot, uh, I mean, I remember early on in Poland, they were saying, well, but if we join the European Union, are we going to lose our sovereignty? And mm-hmm. so this idea of they've lost their sovereignty and now they want to come back and feel as if they're a national sovereign state. Um, so it's surprising, but it seems to be a trend that's increasing. And now you have the hookup between, you know, the people, the, the authoritarian leaders in Central Europe and then... Um, the populist parties in Western Europe, you know, in yes. France, mm-hmm. in Germany, um, in Great Britain. Uh, and so that um, that changes the, the landscape, if you like, in Europe, and it changes it for Russia, too. They say maybe Merkel understands him better than anyone else. Putin, <laughs> would you think that that's I agree. So, a relationship? Yeah, so I, um, I've also written two books on German-Russian relations, and I've been very interested in the relationship between Chancellor Merkel and Putin. She grew up in East Germany. She learned Russian and she won a prize, you know, for the best Russian speaker in East Germany. So uh, she understands the system that produced Vladimir Putin. Um, and um, she is quite wary of him. And in the book, I have sort of two photos showing the way that the relationship has changed, if you like. Uh, when she first met him early on in the beginning, as a good KGB agent, he'd read her file and he mm. read that she had been bitten by a dog as a child. Anyway, she was afraid of dogs. And so he had her sitting in a room with the cameras on. And he had a big black Labrador at that point, whom we actually met at one of these Valdine meetings. Very nice dog. Anyway, but the Labrador walks in and you can look in the expression on her face. And she was obviously dealing with it. She's a leader. And then the smirk on his face. And then you fast forward to last year. And this was after uh, President Trump had been quite rude to her Mm. at a NATO meeting and in other meetings. And suddenly they meet again and there's Putin beaming, handing her a big bunch of flowers. Uh, But, you know, she's not fooled by that. She understands him, but she also understands that given Germany's historical relationship with the Soviet Union, with Russia, you know, Germany and Russia are bound to have a close relationship, even if it's a difficult one. And she's been the one who's led the European Union in keeping on imposing those sanctions on Russia because they have to be voted on every six months. And so she's really been a leader in that, but we don't know what's going to happen when she's no longer chancellor. What's happening in the Baltic area? Well, the Baltic states, I think, um, after Ukraine, you know, became very wary of, you know, what Mm -hmm. could happen to them. And then you've had a debate in this country about, you know, when the Baltic states joined NATO, 
uh, in 2004, nobody was really thinking that Article 5 might one day, which is the self you know, collective defense yes. article, would have to be invoked if they were threatened by another country, i.e. Russia. And so now you've had debates about are they really defensible? And that I think that's still an ongoing debate. And President Trump's role, in, would we be there if yeah. they needed us? Would we be there? They were they, there when we needed right, them. But. Exactly. So, exactly. So they, what are they doing? They're trying to provide for their own defense more. Um, you do have NATO, you have the Germans and the French and the British have now sent their own military reinforcements to the Baltic states. And for Germany, that was quite something to send troops to Lithuania, you know, given the history of World War II. But I, they understand, they, they're conscious that they are vulnerable. Um, they've had cyber attacks from Russia. Um, and so they have to be very vigilant about it. You mentioned earlier that the, one of the greatest successes is Russia's relations in the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, I can't, this would take another hour <laughs> to sort all of that out, but would you yeah. just address it briefly? Sure, and we're reminded of it today. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is in Russia yet again, and President Putin was smiling and saying he's going to visit Israel soon. Um, so what, what Putin did, and this comes back to taking advantage of opportunities, when it became clear, when President Obama said there was a red line in Syria uh, after the Syrian government used chemical weapons on its own population, and then there wasn't a red line. Right. Um, and so I think Putin understood that. And in September of 2014, when it looked as if Assad might be losing the war, um, the Russians started their bombing campaign, and they went in to support Assad more robustly. I mean, they'd supported mm -hmm. him before. And since Russia's entry into that conflict, um, now, you know, they're the chief backer with Iran, obviously, of Assad, mm -hmm. But Russia has now established itself, and I quote um, a, a senior Israeli uh, diplomat to whom I talked, saying that Russian policy in the Middle East is aggressive, flexible, and cognizant of its limits. And what the Russians are now doing, which the Soviets never did, is they aren't ideological about this. They'll talk to all sides in all conflicts. So they, of course, talk to Iran. They have a partnership with Iran. They talk to all the major Sunni states and to Israel. No other great power does that. Mm -hmm. And particularly, more recently, they, they formed two stronger partnerships with two countries that, with whom they had very bad relations during the Cold War and who had bad relations with each other, and that's Saudi Arabia and Israel. And it's quite amazing. In the Saudi case, this has to do with oil and now an mm -hmm. agreement that the OPEC and Russia will keep their oil production down so that prices don't go too low. Uh -huh. um, and with Israel, it has to do with the war in Syria and the Russians using their influence with the Iranians to try and improve Israeli security. Um, but the interesting thing about both Saudi Arabia and Israel is they both think that Russia can really influence the Iranians to step back and to and not to have such malign activities. And I think they may be exaggerated. But, but, but most countries in the Middle East now see Russia as an honest broker, that it's not taking sides in any conflict. It'll talk to everyone, of course, Turkey as well, all of the major countries. Um, and so it can't replace the United States. It doesn't have the military might, but it has a presence there that it's never had before. Do you think our pulling troops out of Syria has played into Russia's hands there? Well, Putin praised President Trump when he said we were pulling troops out of Syria. At this last Valdai meeting, he said the U.S. Uh, was illegally in Syria because Russia had been invited and, and the U.S. wasn't. Yeah. So, yes, that plays right into Putin's hands, and he's very happy about that. Well, finally, uh, how about China? Russia <laughs> and China seem to have gotten cozier. They have. So, uh, again, you have to remember 50 years ago in 1969, Russia and China were the Soviet Union and China were shooting at each other over the border. So we've come a long way since yes. then. Um, and what happened is after Ukraine um, and the sanctions on Russia, Russia has turned more and more to China. Now, the Chinese, in fact, the banks are adhering to the sanctions, but the Chinese have never criticized Russia for what it's done in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, they've now signed an energy, or they did in 2014, sign an energy deal with the Russians for Russia selling gas to China, uh, which the Russians hadn't wanted to sign before because the Chinese are hard bargainers, but they didn't have anywhere to turn. And so now you have a situation where President Xi Jinping calls Putin his best friend. I have a picture in the book of him and Putin cooking, making pancakes together. Uh, you, and those pancakes were made at the same time when Russia and China were just about to embark on their first 
joint military maneuvers. That is to say, China took part last September in Russia's uh, Far East military maneuvers. Um, they both, you know, share a resentment at the United States for creating a world order where they think uh, they are, don't have enough influence and power. So they both talk about a multipolar world. And neither of them criticize each other for what they do domestically. In other words, they mm -hmm. back each other up uh, in however they repress dissidents and things like that. So Russia is definitely the junior partner. China is the rising power and Russia isn't. But it's a very pragmatic and useful partnership for both of them, particularly for Russia. I've found in some of these new democracies that we've visited that uh, Russia is there politically and China mm -hmm. is there economically, and, and they are everywhere. Uh, even China is building a new port in Lima. Now, Latin America is often the forgotten continent, but uh, <laughs> certainly China is there as well as in Africa. You don't hear too much about Russia in the past in Latin America, but certainly they are there now, too. This can be the next book, I guess. <laughs> Hopefully, yes. Yeah, because obviously Russia has developed it developed um, a partnership with Chavez when he was in uh, when he was alive and ruling Venezuela, and now with Maduro. Um, and a lot of that is based on oil and energy. Um, and they've, I think, they've clearly trained security forces there. Uh, the man who uh, is the point person uh, on Venezuela is Igor Sechin, who's the head of Rosneft, the biggest Russian oil company. So there's an energy partnership, but there's a security partnership there, um, and they're very much backing Maduro now. But uh, Mr. Guaido, the um, interim leader, or the one that we've recognized, mm -hmm. has also said that, of course, he'll deal with Russia if he becomes leader. So I think we have to realize that even if you do have a transition to a more democratic government, I think the Russians aren't going to leave Venezuela. Usually we think about Cuba. Uh, <laughs> what's the situation now with Cuba and Russia? Well, the Cuban-Russian relationship is good. I mean, again... Um, uh, you know, the Cubans were very upset by the collapse of the Soviet Union, but the Russians have never left Cuba. So they're certainly there, again, economically and, in, and with their security ties. And then in some of the more left-leaning governments in Latin America, they're certainly present there. So apparently they are in every corner <laughs> of the globe. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd ask you about the future, too. Uh, Putin's next term, again, mm -hmm. and I guess his last term mm -hmm. uh, under the current Constitution is up in 2024. He's going to be 71 years old. Right. Now, we know he's in good shape because he's always <laughs> taking his picture uh, without his shirt on. But truly, his time is probably running out. Now, they could change the Constitution mm -hmm. and let him serve again, or he could pick another person that he's mm -hmm. trained as his successor. But they seem to think or be worried about the fact that it, it's looking more and more like a man without an exit strategy. What do, what do you think is going to happen? What can we predict? And will this be the beginning of a possible reset? Yeah. So this is obviously not very predictable. Yeah. All we know about is what happened uh, in 1999 when Yeltsin handed power to Putin. And Putin had to promise Yeltsin that his family wouldn't be prosecuted for any economic issues. And he kept to his promise. Yeltsin, his family, I mean, Yeltsin's uh, then passed away, but his family was able to live happily, you know, without any uh, indictments. Then we know the Putin-Medvedev, um, you know, switch over, the chess, the castling move, as they say in chess. So what are the options for Putin? In 2024, he could say, I've, I've had four terms in office now, and, you know, this is great, and now it's time for me to retire and, and do something else. Um, and then he could pick a successor. Um, the, the issue there is Putin is surrounded also by other groups of people who owe their possessions and their position in society to Putin. So they would want to be protected too. So if Putin steps aside and someone else takes over, there'd have to be a deal where these people who surround Putin now would also get to keep what they have. That's, is yeah. there anybody really in line? Anybody you could? So there's identify? nobody else. Occasionally, you know, they will say, "Oh, it's there's a governor of this province," but you don't know whether that's real or whether that's just the kind of rumors they like to get everybody fluttering. I mean, you could have the Medvedev option. He's still prime minister, but but I think <laughs> right now another option is. Um, Belarus and Russia formally have a union state. They signed this agreement in 1996. It doesn't mean very much, but there are a lot of rumors now that Putin and the leader of Belarus, Lukashenko, will in, indeed 
um, sign other agreements and that Putin could then become the leader of the super state. Um, so you could have someone who's the president of Russia and oh. then you'd have the president of the super state. I don't think that's very likely because that really would go against everything in Russian history. Putin could do something like um, form a state council where he could be the head of that. You know, people talk about what happened in China after Mao uh, and then after Deng Xiaoping, um, you know, was no longer the leader, but he still had this other position. It's possible, too. Um, but there's, there is a lot of uncertainty surrounding this, and I think from Putin's point of view, it wouldn't be very good to be a lame duck. So um, we will just have to sit down and deal with it, and there could be the chance of a reset, depending who the next leader is. Uh, presumably, it would have to be someone who would keep the system as it is for the time being, but that could change, too. Well, as we go into our next election cycle, uh, do you think that uh, foreign policy, which usually doesn't play a very big role uh, in as much as domestic policy in campaigns, will be more important because of so much that's happening? Well, I think for us, it, again, Russia will be important just because of what happened in 2016 and whatever happens when, you know, the Mueller report is released and the consequences thereof. So, yeah, of course, domestic issues are going to be important. But we also have, you know, a, we have a presidency now in the U.S. Like, unlike anyone we've ever had. Mm -hmm. So it's quite possible that the next campaign will be fought out on different issues as well as, as, well as the ones that it's normally fought out on. Well, as we speak right now, our president is in Hanoi meeting uh, with the president of North Korea. Uh, how is Russia viewing all of this? <laughs> well, the Russians have never been a major player in North Korea. I mean, the Chinese have been the major player, and they've always followed what the Chinese have done. But um, Russia and North Korea have a fairly close economic relationship, and we have some evidence that Russia's been actually violating some of the sanctions against North Korea. What do the Russians want? The Russians would like the United States to leave the Korean Peninsula. Um, they do not want a nuclear-armed North Korea because they realize that that would, could lead, if this goes on, to South Korea and Japan rethinking you know, their mm -hmm. attitude towards nuclear weapons. So I think they would be quite happy if... <clears throat> There is an agreement between the United States and North Korea, and if eventually that leads to a U.S. withdrawal from the Korean Peninsula, but we're not there yet. We're in a stage now where the State Department, from what I hear in testimony, has kind of been demoralized. You know, we have many ambassadorships that have not been filled. There's not a lot of respect paid to diplomacy. We don't believe much in multilateral agreements. It's more of a mano a mano. What advice would you give to your students who want to go into the field of diplomacy? Well, my, and my students have been asking me this. I, I say to them, still go in. I mean, this what the situation we're in now with the State Department is not very good. As you say, there are many countries to which we don't have ambassadors. There are positions in the State Department that aren't filled. But there is a future there. And I think we probably will go back um, to a situation in the State Department, which resembles more what we've had before. And so I definitely advise them to do that. I don't discourage them. And I, we have a lot of, you know, smart young people who want to go into uh, government, who want to go into the State Department. They should definitely do that. Well, I hope that you will come and testify before the Foreign Affairs Committee as we address <laughs> some of these issues this year. It would be wonderful to have you or come to where I taught at UNLV uh, and share some of this with us. Have we missed anything that you want to mention in the book that I no, didn't ask you about? No, I think about? we've covered a lot of things, and, you know, your questions have been very interesting. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope we'll get to do this again sometime. Yeah, me too. Thank, thank you. Thank you.